Hello everyone, welcome to Artistic License. This is episode 2 of our BJJ mini-series with Sam Spiegelman. If you listen to episode 1, you're on your way to being well-versed in the basic language of BJJ thanks to our panel of experts. To help us look deeper into the world of jiu-jitsu today, we welcome Valerie Worthington. Val is one to be considered an expert. After 18 years of training, she is a black belt whose accomplishments reach far past the mat. She has written two books on BJJ, traveled and trained across the country, and co-founded Groundswell Grappling. It's a fact. Men and women must work together on the mat, regardless of differences in size, temperament, or skill level. Val, Sam, and I discuss how men and women can get the best out of training with one another, the importance of communication, and male-female dynamics. Also on the podcast, we talk about Val's exciting career and jiu-jitsu travels, fostering a good training mentality, and walking into the gym as a white belt. All of this and more on today's episode, Women in Jiu-Jitsu, featuring Valerie Worthington. with Muay Thai and then I looked at the mat next to me and there were people doing all kinds of crazy movements with their bodies they were pushing themselves down the mat while lying down and they were doing somersaults which I hadn't done since I was a child and just all these crazy movements and I thought to myself those people look nuts and I need to be doing what they're doing I had no idea what I was doing in jiu-jitsu. I couldn't get my body to do even the most simple things. I I was so excited about not necessarily feeling stupid, but just it was all so new. And I I had just the barest glimmer of of how exciting this could possibly be for me and how, how different from any other experience I'd ever had. So it was kind of this weird combination of... Um, being able to see or at least glimpse the potential of of um of something that that did eventually become very important to me and also feeling just like the dumbest person on the planet i think i'm going through that right now still in my career <laughs> and that's an important point to bring up too is that everybody starts that way your legs want to work but your arms don't work or your arms want to work and your legs don't work and you can't do it at the same time then you're like how come that guy makes it look so easy and I, and I yeah, think that's and a really another, good point. Another observation I would make about that is that, uh, at least for me, I was I was actually 28 when I started, which is, you know, I'm going to say, I, well, I was going to say it's fairly late, but it was when I started. Some people start later in life, some people start earlier in life. But by that time in life, I'd had some, you know, pretty good successes. I was um, fortunate enough to, you know, um, have some good good job experiences and things like that. And I, I quite frankly, wasn't used to not being good at things. And I'd kind of gotten out of the habit of being bad at things or at challenging myself in certain ways. And so I think that what I bumped up against was, well, usually when I'm in a situation, I can think or reason or, um, you know, figure my way out of it using my brain and the resources I have available to me. But all the things that I was good at, jujitsu didn't really care about. (laughs) And, uh, And so I had to really just be okay with the fact that this was completely different. And I'll tell you, I've seen I've seen the same phenomenon in a lot of professionals, people who are incredibly successful at what they do. And then they try to do a, a stand-up and guard or they try to do a sweep or to keep from getting swept. And nothing that they've ever done before has prepared them for this, particularly as adults. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, good, really good point. Yeah, I, I feel like I go through that sometimes where I'm like, dang, you know, I – I'm I know I'm pretty smart but I I can't figure out how I keep getting 
past from this position or whatever. It's so it's such a new feeling to start at the bottom and be bad at something and not mm-hmm. and not know how to think your way out of it. Now, with that being said, too, at the time when you started, you know, jiu-jitsu wasn't as popular. So I'm sure, you know, your friends, family were all really curious to, as to what it is or why you're doing it or... It's it's a funny it, it's a funny question because at first I I did a very poor job of explaining that I I don't think at the time that I had the words to explain why I was so compelled to do this and I would go to jujitsu I would stay for longer than I had expected I would train more times in, in a week than I was than I was anticipating and I started to first of all show it physically because I I get black eyes at the drop of a hat which wasn't so good for you know, being in a professional setting, and I would either cancel on people if we had plans or I wouldn't make plans. And I didn't have the language, actually, to explain why I was doing this because I didn't really know myself. And I know that I put my family and friends through a lot because I seem to be choosing this strange hobby over over other things that I had valued um, at one time. And I was, but I I couldn't explain why. So actually, more recently, I wrote um, an ebook, and it's called How to Love a Grappler, a guide for people who love people who love Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. (laughs) And this was actually my it it was almost a um, uh, an apology to my parents because they put up with so much from me and they they are loving and supportive but when i started doing some of the crazy things i did in the service of jujitsu i'm sure they were kind of looking at themselves going this was not what we were expecting for our darling daughter so (laughs) i took it i i I took some time to really try to articulate what it was about jujitsu that was so compelling for me and to try to write about it in a way that someone who couldn't give a lick about jujitsu might be able to understand, and so the resulting um, product was this was this ebook that I wrote, and I am happy to say that uh, you know my parents understand a lot more now, my family and friends, um, both because I've gotten better at explaining it, and also because they they see how happy it makes me, and I've gotten a lot better at making sure that I don't shirk those other responsibilities, that I am the consistent, dependable person that I've always tried to be. Um, and my love of jujitsu doesn't absolve me of those responsibilities. If I if I make a promise, then I need to keep that promise. And uh, you know, it's too bad if the you know the the current world champion comes to town and is going to do a seminar on a day that I committed to do something else. I have to do that something else. And as I figured out that that was the case, I still needed to be the same kind of person with the same kind of integrity I'd always had. Um, things things got easier, and and like I said, I'm just I'm significantly happier when I'm training, and people like to be around happy Val as opposed to cranky Val. Jujitsu has become a lot more popular in recent years, and with the popularity, there are a lot more resources. So. One of the things that I would suggest to a student who's coming in for the first time is um, for them to do a little bit of research on the academy they've chosen. Most academies these days are going to have some kind of Internet presence. And so you can go online, find out what the schedule is like, see the pictures of the community, get a sense of what the instructors are like. 
Um, so that's one thing to do. And then if if it seems overwhelming to go into a place sight unseen and immediately take a class, you can all you can also always um, go in at an odd time or go in to observe a class. Another thing to just be okay with is that it's going to be really intimidating. It's going to be scary to step on the mat for the first time. You're going to feel stupid. You're going to do things that you think are stupid. Other people are going to recognize themselves in you because um, if they started as adults, then they were there not that long ago. You'll remember those things and the sting of the of what you perceive to be the embarrassment a lot longer than anybody else. So having a sense of humor, being able to laugh at yourself, being excited about learning. Um, you know, you can't ostensibly if you went to an academy, you went there for a reason and, and a pretty compelling one, given how intimidating an academy can seem. So be excited about the opportunity to learn what you came to learn. Now, based on your, your travels, because you have an opportunity to train a lot of different places, what are some qualities you think people should look for when choosing a gym? It's a tough question. Um, and I, I, one of the things that I actually learned was really to sort of trust my gut and to get a sense of um, how, how I felt over and above the, the, um, the embarrassment and the intimidation factor, did this seem like a place where I felt like I could spend some time? Um, did I feel like the people had my best interests at heart? And of course, these kinds of questions, you can't really get the answers to um, early on. It's, a, it's something that happens over time. But I really, I really do think that um, in those kinds of situations, the more in tune we are with kind of that sixth, that spidey sense, um, the better, because everybody's going to tell you that their academy is the best and that it's a great place to train. And not every place is going to be a great place for me to train um, because I may have goals that are different from the ones that are stated um, on the website or the kind of style that, they, that the training is. Um, or I may not like the energy of the place. I may not like um, the, the atmosphere. And it's okay to honor that. Um, I think it's important to honor that. And that doesn't mean you need to be uh, disruptive, but uh, that's another reason that it's a good idea to do some recon ahead of time because you might be able to get the inside story from someone who trains at that place or people who visited that place. Um, so just use the resources that are available to you and also make sure that you're kind of checking in with your gut to see these people are going to be inside your safety bubble. You know, you're trusting them to, to help you um, become better at this sport, but at the beginning, you're going to basically be um, at a disadvantage in terms of in terms of skill and um, you know an ability to kind of um, hold your own. So it's really important to use all the resources that you have available, including your own sense of, of how comfortable you feel. dominated sport as are many. Women are a growing presence, but still in the minority. I am fortunate enough to train with several women at our home gym, but it has not always been that way. Val has been practicing jujitsu for almost two decades, and she comes from an era she refers to as BJJ 1.0, when women were just getting onto the mat. She'd often be the only female in a class full of men. 
do you think it's important for that to be in consideration, like finding a gym with some other females to train with? I think it's always a, a benefit for sure. And I don't think it's just a benefit for the women. I think having um, having both gender perspectives is uh, or multiple gender perspectives is um, is a positive thing. Um, I didn't have that opportunity oftentimes. So I um, when I was coming up, I basically just thought I was a weird woman because there was me and maybe one or two other people. And I didn't have access to at least not at first. I didn't have access to um, an online community of women. So that being said, as you said, um, Rachel, there are um, more women who are doing jujitsu, but chances are it'll still be pretty male dominated. But one of the things that women can do in order to get training with each other is um, there are there are lots of open mats that are hosted. Um, there are um, camp opportunities and other places where women kind of convene and get together and train with each other. And and so I guess I'm sort of in a roundabout way answering your question. Yes, I do think <laughs> it's important for, for women to have the opportunity to train with other women. Um, I, I sort of... I, I refer to it as um, women's jujitsu 1.0 was getting women on the mat, getting them um, feeling like they had a space, that they had a place in jujitsu. And I personally think that women's jujitsu 2.0 is women taking um, leadership roles. Uh, and we're seeing that in the competition scene with all the amazing competitors that there are who are just tearing it up and putting on a really good show and just um, doing amazing things with their jujitsu. And I would also like to see more leadership in terms of um, instructors and um, coaching. And that's also slowly happening. So so I, I'm, I think it's 100% important for um, women to be able to train with women. I think it's important for men to be able to train with women. And I think it's important for everybody to be able to learn from men and women. Um, and I am really happy to see that that's happening more and more. Can you talk about Groundswell? Sure. I run a, a small business called Groundswell Grappling Concepts with two business partners, um, Emily Kwok and Hannette Stack. And you may know their names because they're both world champions. Uh, and so I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with them. And we started out... Um, this was probably seven years ago now. We started out um, doing a, a camps for women who train. And the brainchild, this was the brainchild of Elena Hardy, who um, was a student of Felicia O's. And both of them were, um, were involved at, at one time, and they both had to step back for various reasons. But they helped us kind of create this, um, this situation where we have a business, we run camps, and... Um, People come together, they learn from us for a couple of days, um, and they used to be camps uh, solely for women. And the idea was that, again, t uh, speaking to this issue before of um, uh, women traditionally not having a lot of um, other women in their, in their home academies, giving them the opportunity to have a room full of women to choose from as training partners. And what we've learned um, as we've gone on is uh, that there are lots of men who are interested in what we have to share as well. And I really do think that it comes back to this idea that everybody can teach everybody, everybody can learn from everybody, um, and that women have, have a, a, an interesting and important perspective to share that helps everybody's jiu-jitsu get better. Um, so we've started to do more co-ed events as well, and coincidentally we're doing a co-ed event um, in Chicago 
uh, July 8th through through 10th, and it's at uh, Brazil 021, which is run by Hanette Stack and her husband, Andre Terencio. Um, and some of you may recognize that name. He's a, um, one of the main IBJJF rule, um, uh, referees, excuse me, and just a, you know, an expert on the, on the rules. So we, we've just had this amazing opportunity to pay forward what we've been given as we've come up through the ranks from both men and women, um, and, and to kind of um, pass along what we think is important about jujitsu, both about um, training, but also to the issues that we're talking about, um, also about uh, you know, how, to, how to kind of navigate a jujitsu life um, and live the best one that you can. And I feel really fortunate that I have the opportunity to work with them, and, and, uh, um, and we, we have a good time. So um, we still have space at the camp, so if anybody is interested, then they can definitely sign up. Now, one of the things, uh, at least from you know some of the female students, that they're always interested in in, in how you approach training with you know, bigger, stronger people. You know, you're just starting out; you're smaller, and you go against the big, crazy guy. You know, like Rachel, you're brand new; you're on the bot. You're with some big, crazy guy. How, you know, just some tips for them. So, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really, really advocate communicating with your partner. Um, I think there isn't a lot there. And, and again, this is, this is something that comes with time and practice, the ability to do this. But if I'm rolling with someone um, who's a lot bigger than I am and who is either using a lot of force or um, is, is going really hard, then I'll tap and I'll say, you know what? I'm uncomfortable with the energy that we're generating and I'll make it a we thing. I'll make it into a, we have an issue. How can we work together to solve this problem? And I, I have found that to be very effective because it, it sets up a situation where, okay, both of us have an opportunity to contribute to something positive here as opposed to you're going too hard. And even if that's the case, that the other person is going too hard, it doesn't matter because the goal is not to make the other person feel bad. The goal is to help everybody have a good training experience and to become better training partners. And so what I have found is that if I say, you know, um, I, I, I feel like maybe we could go a, just a little bit lighter until we kind of feel each other out and get a sense of what each other's um, game is like. That would be really helpful to me. Are you willing to do that? I get a lot of enthusiasm and I get a lot of, you know, people trying really hard to do that. And I think it does come back to this, to what you were saying, Sam, about how people don't necessarily know how to roll with each other. Um, Some people may think, you know what, I don't want to disrespect my partner, so I'm going to come at them full bore. And someone else may say, I don't want to disrespect my partner, so I'm going to go super light. And either way, you're bound to find somebody who doesn't like that approach. So instead of playing a guessing game, talk with your partner about it. Um, I'll tell another story that um, for me was really profound too. And I think it was, it was very useful for me um, in terms of understanding the perspective of, of this, this partner that I had. He was a blue belt. He was significantly bigger than I am. I'm probably a, you know, 145, 150 pounds. He was well over 200 pounds. And he was a blue belt. I was a black belt. And I asked him if he wanted to train. And he looked at me with this terrified expression. And I, we started training and he went super, super light. And I stopped because I said, you know what? First of all, I want to thank you so much. I feel like you're really taking the time to protect me. And I really appreciate that. 
But I don't feel like either of us is really getting anything out of this role, and I'm wondering if you would feel more comfortable going a little bit harder. And he, he looked really relieved, and he said yes. So we kind of worked our way up to a level of intensity that we both felt comfortable with. And after the role, he said, you know, when you stopped us, I thought you were going to yell at me for going too light. And I said, well, no, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I didn't, obviously, but what, what makes you say so? And he said, well, I'm a big guy, and my parents always raised me to be polite and respectful, and I'm not going to stop just because I've gotten on a mat, a jiu-jitsu mat. So I'm not going to come at you 100 miles an hour because you're smaller than I am. He said, you also happen to be a woman, but the fact is that you're smaller than I am, and I'm not going to just squish you just because I can. <laughs> And that to me was a really important lesson because, again, coming back to this idea that there might be people who don't have the language to um, yet to explain why they're doing what they're doing. They may not be doing it to be disrespectful. They may be doing it for the exact opposite reason. So you have that. And on the other hand, there are some people who, you know, you, we, we, um, we joke about the, the jujitsu archetypes and there's the let's just go light guy. The one who's like, well, you know, I'm feeling tired or whatever, so let's just go light. And then they come at you a million miles an hour. And for some people, maybe it's going to take a longer time for them to um, to learn that lesson, or maybe they never will. But what I what I try very hard to do, and I don't always succeed, but what I try very hard to do is assume the best of people and see if there's a way for me to communicate what I need and to see if it dovetails with what that other person needs, and then and then we can have we can have a decent role. Um, and like I said, it doesn't always work, but at least I know I've tried. And even if somebody isn't necessarily great at it the first time, we've planted the seed so that that they can become better at becoming training partners. I think I think becoming a good training partner is something that we always have to work at, just the way we have to work at um, perfecting an armbar, which never is perfect. It's something that we always, always have to be working at. So that's my long-winded answer. Oh, that's a good point. And always... I always talk to the instructor too. I, I think sometimes people are either intimidated or they don't want to be considered like, you know, the person that complains a lot or whatever it is. But ultimately, like, having someone that other people don't feel comfortable training with will, you know, c- could disrupt the training environment. Absolutely, and you raise a really good point about um, the instructor. And and uh, there are different ways to to manage this. Some instructors will actually pair students up. Um, other instructors kind of keep an eagle eye. And other instructors will, um, you know, make sure that, okay, this guy's, this guy's big and he's learning or this girl is big and she's learning or they're, or they're whatever size and they're learning and they have a tendency to go a little bit too hard. So, um, so I'm going to kind of keep them over here with some of the people that I know can handle, can handle training with them. And I'm not going to put them with the, with the brand new person who's, you know, still just trying to, as you said, learn how to tie their belt. So there are lots of ways to respectfully and and clearly communicate what you need one of the important things is to is to figure out what what it is that you need that you're not getting um and second of all to figure out whether it's something that you can handle on your own or whether you need um, an instructor to intervene so that's a really really good point too yeah that was actually one of my questions what to do if you are made to feel uncomfortable rolling with a partner i don't know what the mat code is well and i think that's going to differ for every um for every school and it's also going to differ depending on what it is that happened right so here is another situation where um even if you don't have the language to explain it if you feel like if you feel uncomfortable um then i would um and have done what i've done is sort of try to um 
uh, how do I put it best? Not talk about the other person behind their back, but sort of observe that person as they train with other people. Maybe try to find out a little bit about that person and what what other people's experience is like of rolling with that person, um, and keep an eye on it and kind of you know keep in your mind the things that um, the things that uh, uh, that make you uncomfortable and be ready to tap immediately. It doesn't need to be to any sort of submission. It could just be because you're feeling uncomfortable and you can make up some kind of excuse like your gi was in my face or you know your knee was on my hair or uh, you can come up with anything. <laughs> And just tap anytime you feel uncomfortable um, and wait until you've gathered enough data so that you can so that you can do something, whether it's whether it's say, you know what, I'm not comfortable training with this person and telling the instructor or whether it's, uh, you know, conveniently deciding that you're going to take a break every time that person needs a partner. There are lots of ways that you can that you can kind of defuse a situation without having to. Um, to make a uh, um, to make it a big a capital I issue of it. Mm-hmm. The question, though, is: Is this just a um, a, a matter of um, uh, grappling personalities, or is there something more going on here that needs to be addressed? And that is the reason I think for um, for being observant and trusting your gut and and uh, trying to gather as much information as you can. Because if it's just I don't like this the way this person rolls. That's one thing, and there are right. ways that you can kind of get around it. But if it's something that's a little bit more nefarious or dangerous or um, problematic in some way, then um, then your observations could actually be very helpful in um, in some kind of intervention. sort of something for everybody to understand. Let's say a a blue belt and a brown belt are rolling together. The tendency seems to be that the brown belt will let the blue belt set the pace. So if the blue belt kind of comes at the brown belt in a a spirit of kind of testing things, um, probing, trying things out and kind of playing, then the brown belt will respond in kind. If the blue belt comes at the the brown belt as if it's a a steel cage deathmatch, then the brown belt is going to have to respond in kind because the brown belt is going to have to go into self-preservation mode. And this is something that I think, um, I, I don't think many people or enough people realize that if you're, the, if you're the lower belt in the situation and you come at someone super hard, then they're going to come back at you because they're going to need to protect themselves from the, you know, the million miles an hour. So also being aware of our own energy as we're as we're rolling you know am i super tense what is the contribution that i'm making to this um to this this uh this situation and that's why i always frame it as i'm uncomfortable with the energy that we're generating you know even if i feel like and my ego is telling me it's all that guy's fault if i kind of um you know bring that person male or female into into the problem situation and say hey this is something we can work on together um, then that raises awareness and it also makes it it makes it easier to come up with a solution, which is helping everybody have a good training experience. Now, as far as is building that training experience, uh, a lot of people approach jujitsu like school, like they went there to learn, to take notes. It was something they were paying for, just like you know college or whatever. 
and they try to get as much out of each class as they could. And I think sometimes now I don't see as many people looking at class as like a learning environment as opposed to like a competitive environment where they want to come in and do, you know, tap certain people or tap, use this submission or try to, you know, not get submitted, try to sweep some, whatever it is, as opposed to like looking at what they've learned through that training session. And if you could elaborate a little bit on, on your thoughts on that. Well, it, it makes sense if if we take as true the idea that the UFC has kind of helped bring jiu-jitsu into um, uh, you know, to, to a wider audience. Um, and now you can stream IBJJF matches and tournaments and things and, it, and, and other you know, matches from, from, other, um, from other tournaments as well. And so what you see in those environments is not the learning process. You see the, the seek and destroy. And that's kind of that's one aspect of the um, sort of the whole jujitsu experience is the, um, is the, the competitive aspect. And there isn't as much, I guess, opportunity for people to see, you know, video of a master class or video of, um, I mean, quite frankly, who wants to watch video of someone drilling an armbar a hundred times? <laughs> but that's really, that's how you get to the point where you could do that armbar, that same armbar in a finals match at an IBJJF tournament and get a gold medal. So I think it, I think it's, not surprising that people have that mindset, particularly if they come in saying, yeah, you know, I saw the UFC and I want to throw down. Um, so it does take a little bit of enculturation and a little bit of, I want to say kind of jujitsu maturity to get to the point where you can see the beauty in, in spending a session drilling and learning a nuance about a technique that you thought you knew inside and out and realizing that there's so much more to it. Um, and so I, so I, I guess the short of it is I, I, I don't think it's surprising that that's the mindset anymore. Um, but to your point, there, there is the potential for something to be lost if we don't really focus on the, the, pro, the process of learning um, and understanding how you get to the place where you could be standing on a podium wearing a gold medal. People, they don't see the, the hours and the, the time people put in learning stuff. And you can use that stuff as a really good resource. And that kind of reminds me, too, of what our instructor, Carlos, always says when people come in, like, oh, yeah, I saw some guy do that on YouTube. <laughs> but not watching an instructional video on YouTube, just watching a black belt match come in and try to do some kind of, like, flying something <laughs> and hurt themselves instead of just focusing on the technique in class, getting better that it, way. It really, uh, it, it definitely just comes back to, and it's such a, such an easy thing to say, you know, leave your ego at the door. It's such an easy thing yeah, to yeah. say. And we say it so often that it's kind of lost meaning, but it really is, you know, trust the process, um, understand that you have worlds more to learn, um, you know, go on YouTube if you want to, but don't, don't uh, expect people to be super impressed with what you're doing because almost by definition, if you're a beginner, you're not going to be that impressive. And it shouldn't be about trying to be impressive. It should be about trying to get better um, and, and uh, you know, being impressive that way, having a good work ethic, uh, um, progressing quickly because you are paying attention and because you are being diligent. Um, and, uh, and, and, and having those be the reasons that you want to do jujitsu instead of some kind of accolades that, that may or may not ever come to pass. 
years ago and you know mark had everybody write down their own little game plan like right, a couple things you do from each position pretty interesting if you, if you look at it and you'll you might find a position where like oh i don't have a couple things that i do from there and you're like okay you can kind of see holes here and there but you approach it with that that method like okay now i have two or three things how do i put those together i want to try doing that <laughs> yeah, seems like a, a really good idea it's a pretty eye-opening eye-opening experience. Well, another thing that I've actually found is when I have committed to drilling as, you know, a, a certain sequence or a certain technique, you start to see it everywhere. And what that does is it, it helps you in a weird way by going deep, it helps you go at least a little bit broad. Because if I have been working my muscle memory super hard to, to set up a certain, let's say a certain sweep, then I start to see lots of places where I could set it up or where I might be able to um, maneuver myself into position. And so that helps me understand, okay, you know, my partner is, my partner is shifting his weight this way. And to get the sweep, I would normally need them to have it this way. So how do I get my partner's weight to go the direction I need it to go? So you can actually start to go broad by going deep because developing a relatively sophisticated understanding of a small number of techniques almost necessarily helps you think about how those techniques relate to everything else that you see and feel when you're when you're training how do you think jiu-jitsu has affected you not just with those intangibles like you know pursuing goals and sticking with commitments but as far as you know the way you the way you live your life like you're you know, the, the way you, you eat, you take care of your body, the way you, your relationships, people you surround yourself with. So I have two responses to that. And the first one is um, jujitsu sort of, so jujitsu kind of changed my life in, in slow, almost imperceptible ways. And it also changed my life in an almost cataclysmic way. So the slow and perceptible ways were um, as I got more interested in training and, um, you know, wanting to be able to be at my best physically, I stopped going to happy hours and I stopped staying out late and I started to eat better and, you know, cut out coffee and things like this. So slowly but surely I did change. I made quantitative changes that eventually became qualitative changes. So, and this again had reverberations in my social life because I wasn't going out with people at night anymore and and that kind of thing. And and so I, I made those kinds of changes um, kind of on a, on, a, on a more gradual scale because I wanted to be present and available and at my best for jujitsu. So that's one way that, that I used jujitsu to change my life or that jujitsu prompted me to make changes so that I was, so that I was ready to, to train um, all the time. The other thing that... Um, that I use jujitsu for, and I'm trying to be really precise here. I, you know, I know that people say, you know, jujitsu changed my life and things like this, but I just am a firm believer that we, we change our own lives. And in my case, jujitsu just happened to be the tool that I used, but all of the responsibility for the changes I've made in my life, that's all mine. So I, I don't say it's jujitsu's fault. I say, I did this because I, I was committed to jujitsu. So that's why I'm trying to be so particular with my language here. But One thing that happened was when I started training regularly, I just felt so much joy and contentment when I was training 
that it threw into contrast the fact that I had made some other changes in my life that were making me unhappy. So I was in a job I didn't like very much. Um, I was kind of headed professionally in a direction I didn't actually want to go. And I was getting to the point where I was done living in the place I was living, um, didn't like the actual home I was living in and was ready for a change from the city I was living in. Um, and so what happened, and this is kind of where it got cataclysmic, one day I realized, wow, it's, I, I had been kind of going through my life with an okay life. It was fine. Um, I was fortunate in many ways. I was, I was loved and I had a lot of good things going on, but I wasn't joyful. And when I trained and I felt joy, I realized how much it was absent in the rest of my life. So the, the kind of cataclysm happened when I decided that I had to remake the rest of my life so that it felt as good as it did when I was training and that I wasn't just kind of squeezing in uh, joy in my life into my training sessions and then kind of, you know, um, cooling my heels until the next time I was able to step on the mat. So that prompted me to quit that job and sell the home and buy a car and leave the city and drive around training jujitsu um, because I was in search of, I was in search of a life that matched how good jujitsu felt. So there are kind of two answers to the, to the question you asked. And one of them was just a very gradual, um, you know, changes in the way I dressed, changes in my language, changes in who I spent time with. Um, and the other was this more, um, you know, kind of catastrophic uh, explosion of change where I just kind of dismantled everything that I had built and, uh, and rebuilt it from scratch. What made you decide to travel? I got to the point where I wasn't sure what else to do. <laughs> so I, um, I knew that I needed a big change. I knew that I needed to, to uh, kind of do an, like a huge spring cleaning of my life. And when I thought about, and again, this comes back to kind of trusting my gut. And when I thought about finding a different city to live in or maybe moving to a different part of the city, um, none of that resonated with me and it wasn't until I thought well you know you could travel around it's you know summertime was coming um you know and and so when I started to think about that that just made sense to me and it felt good in my gut if that makes sense and I decided that um I would pursue that because it felt right and because I didn't really have any other viable options what was the most challenging part of traveling to other gyms and then what was like the big takeaways you got from doing that? The most challenging part was the unknown every day. Every day I woke up and would um, decide where I was going to go train. And I, with few, with a few exceptions, I didn't know anybody at these academies, didn't know anything about how I would be received. Um, and so I would just go in and um, I just got used to, a friend of mine describes it as, I just got used to feeling comfortable with discomfort. And so I just kind of knew that um, in order for the payoff to happen, which was that I got to do jujitsu, I kind of had to go through this very, very uncomfortable, um, uh, damn it, I guess, or um, uh, and, and uh, be asked the same questions, you know, what, what are you doing in town and where do you train and why are you here and 
um, there aren't very many women who train and uh, those kinds of things. And sometimes changing in a supply closet and sometimes changing, having, you know, making all of the guys have to wait outside the one changing area so that I could change um, and, you know, doing all these things and just sort of trying really hard to see the humor in it. So that was the hardest was the unknown every time. But what was so amazing was that the best part about it was the payoff every time. I got to learn something new about um, a sport that I loved. I made some connections with people. Um, and I, I generally just had a wonderful time training in the places I trained. I was, I was so overwhelmed with, with welcome. I mean, after, after people sort of got used to, okay, I guess she's here to train, you know, I, I guess we're going to, we're going to do this. Um, I did my best to be, you know, friendly and engaging and a good student and all these things, a good training partner to the best of my ability at the time. And people were, people were accepting and friendly. And I think it was a testament to the fact that we all had this love of this, of this martial art. And, um, once people saw that I was serious about it too, then I was kind of, I was one of them. Um, and so, so it just, I, I knew that I could get there. I knew that I could get to that place of acceptance, if only temporarily. Um, as long as I, as long as I, uh, you know, was tried to be a good student and I couldn't help loving jujitsu. So that part was pure. competed actually in several years but when I was when I was competing um, I was probably doing let's see I'm gonna say six weeks out I probably started if I wasn't already I probably started doing two a days and I would you know build in my um, my weightlifting as well and you know try to be careful about it because I didn't want to overtrain but mm -hmm. uh, you know maybe I do a hard training session in the morning and drilling at night or something like that. Um, and I would uh, do some competition style matches also, you know, starting from the feet um, and drilling takedowns and guard poles and things. And I was also trying to make sure that I was eating well, um, staying hydrated. I was really fortunate because at the time, um, and this is actually still pretty true of me, I, I um, make a living, I can make a living as long as I have an internet connection and a computer, I can, I can make a living. So I was able to nap in the middle of the day and, you know, get my work done at night. Um, and so I was, I was really able to kind of give myself over to the process of preparing for competition in a way that, um, that I don't right now. But those were the kinds of things I did. I think it would be it would be difficult for me to do two a days, you know, as a general rule, but for the couple of months before competitions or, you know, during competition season, that's something that I had that I had the opportunity to do. Do you remember what your first competition felt like? Oh, I was just terrified and <laughs> wishing that uh, wishing that the ground would open up and swallow me whole. And that unfortunately never happened. So <laughs> what I so what I do now when when people ask me um, how to prepare for their first competition or what they should be doing for their first competition, this is something that I firmly believe and that I wish I had allowed myself to do. I believe that when you're competing for the first time, your job is to experience competing. Mm -hmm. It's to get a sense of what kinds of stimuli you're going to be up against, what are the important stimuli to pay attention to, what are the ones that you can um, ignore, getting better at doing those things, 
thinking about what the skill set is that's related to competing because jujitsu skill and competition skill are related, but they're different. And so I, I would, I would listen to my coaches in terms of how to prepare. And then I would go into a competition, my first competition, doing everything I can to pay attention and to, and to pay attention so as to remember later what went well, what was overwhelming, um, what I would like to, to see, what, what I would like to have done differently, um, what surprised me, all those kinds of things. And of course, the, the goal of competing is to, is to compete and to, and to win, hopefully. But if that, if that doesn't happen at first, if you don't win at first, in my mind, you still are um, victorious, shall we say, if you've paid attention and if you've learned something about competing so that you could compete better a little bit, uh, a little bit better the next time. And so for me, in answer to your question about how it felt for me to compete, it was terrifying and I forgot everything I knew. I thought I knew how to do. And I got the adrenaline dump so that my wrists were killing me and my forearms. And I was so just gassed. And so I decided that I was going to compete until I wasn't afraid of it anymore. And that's, that's kind of where I got to. And I don't think I ever got to the point where I loved competing, but I, again, it was, it was kind of like, I knew what the payoff was going to be. I just had to get through the gauntlet. Wow. That's, that's awesome advice. Thank you. (laughs) I'm sure other people will appreciate that too, but I feel particularly encouraged. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You can't fail at experiencing competing. That's what I, I keep saying. I was talking to a girl um, at our gym last night who had competed um, in the spring open, and she was saying, well, I mean, but I didn't win. And I was like, yeah, but you competed. Like, to me, if mm-hmm. I got out on the mat, I would be super happy. If I didn't get hurt also, I would be mm-hmm. super happy. Like, everything else feels kind of secondary. Yep. Conquering the fear and and doing your best and then like you said experiencing and observing everything mm-hmm. definitely most important huge thanks to Valerie Worthington you can find her ebooks on artichokemedia.com and learn more about groundswell at groundswellgrappling.com Thanks to Sam Spiegelman and my partner, Tim Apuli, as well as WGN Radio and Hard Times Productions. I'm Rachel Woodall. Until next time, this has been Artistic License. Thanks for listening.